Good morning, everyone, and I hope that you uh, saw in our deacon uh, installation there an attempt, our attempt, like we really do with many things, to be a New Testament church. They laid hands on and identified leaders in the early church, and so do we. <laughs> so let's feel a little connection to uh, the, the, the ancient past of the church. And here we are now also doing what the church did, and that is opening <clears throat> the scriptures and having a time of teaching in a time of, uh, of, of learning and growing and challenge, and that is what we, we, uh, we want to be. So if you happen to be visiting here today, this is a little glimpse into Bethel Church. We believe the Bible is God's word. We believe that, uh, that Jesus really was raised from the dead. We believe that the Holy Spirit could do something very profound right here in this moment in your life. Do you believe that today? So this is not just some little activity that we're doing on a rainy Sunday day. We have come into the presence of God. We're opening his word and all the power that God had and his promises is now available to us in this time. And I pray that God does something really great here this morning. All right. Well, in saying that, though, I will tell you that we are aiming to have a little bit of a shorter service today. Uh, As Pastor Brad shared with you, we have our small group ministry fair that's going on in the commons, and we want to give you a little bit of time to be able to interact with that. And so uh, we are going to, we're aiming for a little bit of a shorter service, uh, which means that I am in foregoing uh, any sort of introductory comments that would engage you in the message. There'll be none of that. I also am uh, abstaining from any humorous comments that might somehow invigorate your heart towards listening to the message today. So there will be uh, none of that. And of course, some of you think that there never is. Uh, (laughs) We're continuing our series today in 1 Corinthians 8, and I'm going to read verses uh, 7 and 8 in just a moment, but let's just refresh our, our minds on what is going on here in this letter. Remember, Paul is writing a letter back to the Corinthians in response to a letter that he wrote to them. And the Corinthians had questions about uh, church life and ministry and how to live the Christian life on lots of different levels. And here is now another one that we've come across in chapter 8. And the issue is one that uh, will sound a little bit unusual to us, especially if you weren't here two weeks ago when we really talked about the background on all of it. I don't have time today to get into all of that again. But basically, the issue was whether or not a Christian could eat meat purchased in the marketplace that previously had been offered to an idol. There in Corinth, idol worship, the idol, the goddess Aphrodite, dominated the whole city and the culture of of the city. And so uh, this was a big deal, and many people had been saved out of that into the church here at Corinth. And so they had background in this, and this became a point of disagreement. There were some in the church who said, an idol ain't anything anyway, so hey, let's buy it, and after all, it's on sale at Costco, so let's enjoy it. The other group said, listen, there's no way that a Christian should eat meat that's been offered to an idol. I mean, come on. We don't want any part of that kind of thing, do we? And so there was this disagreement uh, about whether or not it was appropriate for a Christian to eat meat that had been offered to an idol. Now, in verses 1 through 6, Paul uh, Paul agrees doctrinally with the group that said that it is okay to eat meat that's been offered to an idol. And he basically does that by saying that we all know that an idol isn't anything anyway. So food that's offered to nothing means nothing. So if you can get it on sale at Costco, go for it. 
or I'm Sam's or Strax or wherever you happen to frequent in your purchasing. We want to be a, we're all the same. There's no corporate promotions going on here. Although we might be open to that. Uh, no, I'm kidding with that. So anyway, this is the, this is the disagreement. And Paul agrees with the group that says that it's, it's, it's not doctrinally a problem. But his concern is not their doctrine. His concern is their attitude. And we see that in verse 1 where he says that this knowledge that they have that, that an idol isn't anything had puffed them up. This knowledge had puffed them up and they are looking down their noses on the people who disagreed with them. So this is the issue. It's not doctrinal primarily, although as we talked about, love is a doctrine. It is the attitude that they are displaying and the disunity in the church. All right, now with that, let's read verse 7 and 8 and get into our text today. However, not all possess this knowledge. This knowledge being the freedom that we have to eat idle meat. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. All right, so now we're into uh, something that if you've been around churches very long, you know is a very common uh, challenge that Christians have regarding these lifestyle decisions that Christians will inevitably disagree about. There are things that Christians will banter back and forth about whether or not it is something that a Christian ought to participate in. These are known as areas of Christian liberty, okay? Say that with me, Christian liberty. So when I talk about Christian liberty, I'm referring to these gray areas where the Bible has not specifically said morally, this is right and this is wrong, where different people will come to different conclusions on it. Christian liberty. These oftentimes become battlegrounds for Christians. And if you've been around the church very long, then you know that, or if you've got Christians in your family or some other place where you've got to get along with other people, that these things oftentimes can take on a life of their own. Now, I think the issue here is a safe one for us to talk about, and I'm really glad that it, that it is, because I know as I talk about whether or not we should eat food offered to idols, that there's nobody here going, I don't think so. I'm ready to fight about that because really here we don't care uh, so much about that because it's not a part of our culture. And so I'm glad that we can talk about a safe one without any of you getting all agitated about whether or not uh, this is right or not. Because if I gave you a list of the things that right now currently are an issue, if I began to list maybe the four or five things, I know what would happen is all of a sudden you'd be like, oh, I already know about that. Right. And then people would get all and you wouldn't hear anything I have to say today. Because you'd be all agitated about your particular issue. So we're talking about a safe one here, okay? We're on, we're on solid ground. We can talk freely about it. Nobody's getting upset as we talk about it. Food offered to idols, right? I think we're safe, okay? Anybody got a major issue? This has been like something that's been a big deal to you all your life? Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay, so we're safe as we talk about this. What I want to do, though, is I want to create a paradigm from idol meat disagreement that we can apply to the other areas that we perhaps do have differences of opinion. And this would be a very profitable thing. 
All right. Now, what happens here is that uh, Paul, again, agrees with those that say that food offered to an idol is fine for a Christian to eat. He says basically in verse 8 that God doesn't care about these food issues. We're no better off if we do. We're no worse off if we don't. It's not a big deal to God. Now, others, though, who came out of a pagan worship background, this was a big deal to them. So in the church, then, you have these two groups, those that say, it's okay, no problem, let's do it, and those that are essentially offended at the thought that another Christian would be, would be doing this. So, in light, let me ask you this question, okay? In light of the grand themes of what God is doing, let's just go back to the big stuff, like God being creator of the world, and God making us in his image, and God making us for himself, and the fall of man in sin, and God's rescue plan with Christ to redeem us and to save us by his death on the cross, and the raising of him from the dead, and the, and the ascension to heaven, and the establishing of the church, and, and the glorious coming someday when Christ will return and consummate history, and all, I mean, the big, we talk about the big stuff. Would you agree that Idle eating meat is not that big. Yeah, it's not that big. It's, it's a minor thing. We're not talking like deity of Christ sort of level issue here. It is, a, it is a minor thing. However, if your conscience is bothered by it, now it is a big thing. Now it is an important thing. And so this is what Paul is talking about, the weaker brother is somebody who has a weak spot in their, in their uh, uh, let me just say it this way. <laughs> I, got it. I wrote it better than I can say it right now. Who is the weaker brother? Who is the weaker conscience brother? It is somebody, a Christian, who has not personally embraced freedom in an area of potential liberty. Who has not personally embraced freedom in an area that the Bible or God would permit liberty to participate in as a Christian. Now you see this in verse seven, where in verses one through six, Paul basically says, okay, you that say idol offered meat offered to an idol is fine. You're right. However, he says in verse seven, not all possess this knowledge or not all have consciences that are free to eat this meat. Now let's talk about conscience. Okay. Let's talk about conscience a second. What is our conscience? Our conscience is something that God placed within every single human being. It is a moral compass by which we evaluate whether or not something is right or wrong. And you all know what I'm talking about, right? There is something in life, there's some opportunity, there's something that you could do, not do. Your conscience kicks in and sort of tells you, yes, this is okay to do, or no, it is not. Romans 2.15 says that God has put a conscience in every man. So mankind's, this inward compass that God put in us, Adam and Eve, it, it operated perfectly. They had not fallen into sin. So when their compass said, this is wrong to do, it was wrong to do. If their inward compass said, this is right to do, it was right to do. When they sinned, they, and now all the rest of our consciences, it's like the little, whatever, magnets or however whatever makes a compass work, the needle got twisted, you know? It, it's, 
So it used to point this way, but now it's slightly been altered. Our consciences are no longer totally accurate assessors of whether or not God would be pleased by doing something. The fall did that. Gloriously, though, Christianity and salvation, God is in the process of transforming our consciences back according to what his will is. And the way that we know what God's will is, is his word. God's word is his will. And this is one reason when I say, okay, we got to always do this, you know, filter everything through God's word, look at everything. That's a picture of Tony Sorcy's new daughter that was just born this week. Tony's right over here. Let's give him love for having a new daughter born this week. All right. Okay. He did absolutely nothing, but way to go, Pam. All right. Uh, So we look at life, we have to look at life this way, but we also have to look at moral decisions and lifestyle decisions this way. And God is in the process now as Christians, this growth in Christ, this sanctification of reconforming the moral compass within us back to what his will is. And none of us get there in this life. We won't ever have that perfectly, but that is a part of growing in Christ so that we can come to understand in a better way, again, what it means to live in God's good creation and enjoy the things that he says are good. Okay? Now, here's the thing. Christians come to different conclusions about some things. And good Christians can come to different conclusions on things, and these are known as areas of Christian liberty. Or as Romans 14 calls them, disputable matters. So again, we're not talking about clear moral categories. Whether or not to rob a bank is not an area of Christian liberty. You with me? God has said, you know, thou shalt not steal. We don't need to debate that. But there are many, many other areas that are. So the weaker brother in these areas is the one whose conscience keeps him from freely participating in something. That the Bible doesn't necessarily limit for all Christians. Now, in 1 Corinthians 8, the issue is whether Christians can eat meat offered to idols. All right? That's not an issue for us. I could, again, list issues that are for us, and you wouldn't hear anything else I have to say. Some of you, so I'm not going to do that. But you probably can guess some of the areas that I would be talking about. What I want you to see here, though, is that the weak conscience Christian is the one who has the limitations. Now, if you grew up like I did, in my Christianity that I grew up in, it was the person who had the longest list of convictions that was the spiritual one. And it was almost like a contest to have more convictions than the other person, right? And to sort of limit yourself more and more, and then I'm the most spiritual one. The longer your list of rules, the more that you have, the more godly you are, And so I remember actually when I was studying this and it dawned on me, actually Romans 14 was the one that kicked this in for me, which is the parallel passage of 1 Corinthians 8. It dawned on me that it is the the weaker brother is the one who has the things in their conscience that doesn't allow them to participate. I always thought it was the opposite of that. But no, indeed it is. This is the case. You can see it yourself. Now, many years ago, I read a book that was very helpful to me, and I want to share a little bit of uh, the teaching from that book. A guy named Joe Aldrich wrote a book called Lifestyle Evangelism. And in that book, he 
uh, breaks down this whole stronger brother, weaker brother thing into really four kinds of Christians. And I think that this will be very helpful in understanding what this is talking about. Let me just share with you the first two. You see the other two. But he says there are two kinds of weaker brothers. There is the professional weaker brother, and there is the susceptible weaker brother. Now, the professional weaker brother is the weaker brother that uh, is dogmatic about their particular issue. They will not listen to any other opinion. Nobody that does that is going to heaven. This is an absolute, and they're ready to go nuclear about it. Have you ever known a professional weaker brother? And... This is the person, they have no sense of theological scale. They don't see how some things can be more important than others. Everything is important. Every issue is something to go to the mat about. And they will fight to the end for their particular conscientious issue. They also think everybody should live according to their conscience. And oftentimes, they seek to control everybody to live according to what their particular conscientious issue is. Again, in a gray area that the Bible does not clearly talk about. And professional weaker brothers are annoying, okay? They are totally annoying, and most churches are better off without them. So if, you are, if you've known a professional weaker brother, or you are a professional weaker brother, we would just like to say to you, um, and I don't even know what I want to say to you, but I do want to say that... Here's what the Bible says that you do to a professional weaker brother. You rebuke him and you correct him. Romans 14, verse 16. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. The professional weaker brother is going to call what God has possibly deemed good evil and wrong and absolute. So the professional weaker brother, we're not talking about him 1 Corinthians 8 is not talking about him. What this is describing is the susceptible weaker brother. This is the person who their conscience is weak. They are immature in their faith and and growth and knowledge and and conscience and all of that. And they are influential. They are easily influenced by the seeing of somebody else, particularly maybe a stronger brother that they would look up to, who is participating in something, and they could be swayed to doing it themselves simply by seeing that person doing it. They think to themselves, well, I know my conscience doesn't let, give me freedom to do it, but you know what? There's Frank, and fr- I respect Frank, and Frank's actually telling me that I should be a part of this, and I should do it, but my conscience isn't there, but he's urging me to do it. I think maybe I'm going to do it. This is the second person. And this is who 1 Corinthians 8 is concerned about. They are easily swayed and influenced. This might be a young person. This might be a new Christian, something like that. And they could be influenced to go against what their conscience allows, the susceptible weaker brother. Now, I got thinking about how our consciences get these kind of weaknesses to them. And I think that there are many reasons, but let me just give you a few of them here. Maybe this will help us understand. The weaker conscience brother are influenced by their pre-Christian lifestyle, by past teaching or teachers in their life, by the lifestyle example of somebody that was spiritually influential to them, or some other conscience-shaping experience. Now, 1 Corinthians 8 is clearly the first one. 
their pre-Christian lifestyle is what's going on here in chapter 8. Realize that these people, and it's hard for us to understand, and it's hard for me to understand, how dominating idol worship was in that culture. These people had grown up in Corinth. The highest point of the city was the temple, and on, on that point was the temple to Aphrodite. It was the center of the city. They grew up with their parents going there and worshiping. They grew up going there themselves and worshiping. And so they, all that they knew was this kind of a pagan lifestyle. To go there was to sacrifice an animal. To go and worship was to unite yourself with a prostitute, male or female, that was there. So there is just massive immorality that's going on. It is a mindset that dominated the city. So these people grew up in that kind of thing. And then they heard the gospel. Then they heard, you know what? Aphrodite isn't a God. There is only one God. And he is the God of the Bible. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God that made you. And that this God loves you and is longing for you and sent his son, Jesus Christ, out of his love to rescue us from the despair of our situation. And that he raised him from the dead on the third day just to, to, for our, our justification, showing that he accepted the sacrifice. And right now he's at the right hand of God. And you know what? He's coming back again. And these Corinthians, who all their life thought Aphrodite was actually the one to live for, believed in the gospel and in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that believing in Christ was a leaving of the whole pagan thing and the lifestyle that went with it and a coming to faith in Christ, which was for them a glad day. How about you? When you came to faith in Christ, was that not a glad day to leave the things of this, the mindset of this world and the living for things of this world and to realize there is something far greater? It is Christ. It was a glad day for them. Was it for you? All right. Now, now you can sort of realize why for some of these people in the Corinthian church that those years of idol worship there were so profound to them that even after coming to faith in Christ, they still felt a little superstition about the whole temple goddess thing. And so meat that had been offered in worship to this goddess was for them something that they were not so interested in eating because it represented to them the lifestyle that they left when they came to faith in Christ. Their consciences remained weak. I think this is similar to, and uh, maybe in our day, somebody whose lifestyle, you know, they were an alcoholic. And they, it just dominated their life. Then they come to faith in Christ, find balance, find peace, find freedom in Christ. And then they, their, their wife says, hey, why don't you stop at Walmart and pick up some milk? And so they go to Walmart and they, and they or, or <laughs> Costco, Wiseway, Meyer. I don't know if I've hit them all or not, but let's say, let's say uh, the Walmart grocery store. So they, he stops by the Walmart grocery store. He runs up to the back and he gets some milk. He sees some cheese over there. He goes and he gets the cheese. His wife calls and says, honey, you got to get home. The kids are going crazy. And he's like, okay, I got to get home. Well, the fastest way to get back to the checkout from the cheese 
area at Walmart is to walk down the liquor row. So he's like, I've got to get back. And he takes like three steps going down the liquor row, and he's like, I think I'm going to go down the chips and salsa row like this, right? You can sort of see that. Why? Because that to him represents something that dominated his life prior to faith in Christ and now is for him something that he is glad not to be dominated by anymore. Or you can think about, think of, a, think of somebody who was dominated by pornography in their pre-Christian past and they go to uh, Barnes & Noble and they're going to get coffee. Well, you walk into Barnes & Noble or Borders And to get to the coffee area, you have to walk by the magazine racks. And so as he walks to the right to go by the... He goes, oh, no, I'm going to go the other way. Because in his heart, he feels this little... <clears throat> happen as he walks by things that represent to him what his pre-Christian life was and what dominated him. And their consciences remain weak. Is it wrong to walk down the liquor aisle on your way back to... No. Was it wrong to walk by a magazine rack on your way to the coffee? No, it's not. The Bible has nothing to say about that so much. But for them, their conscience kicks in and they feel that this is not appropriate. Oftentimes, what we are saved from is an area that we feel the most conscientious about on the other side of our salvation in a way that somebody that didn't come from that background doesn't feel anything about. Now, there are other uh, influences here. I think that the personal convictions of the person who discipled us in our life, oftentimes we just sort of absorb whatever their convictions were, especially if you, here's a great example of this, if you grew up in a Christian home and your parents had particular convictions about things in these gray areas, how easy it is for those just to kind of become like your convictions, and then you feel an obligation to honor your mom or your dad by holding to that conviction, even after you realize that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about this. Can some of you relate to that? Uh Uh-huh. I had a woman, I was talking with our seniors class, our senior citizens class Wednesday about similar issues to this, and I had a woman come up to me after the class, and she said, oh, Pastor Steve, She goes, back in the 1930s, my mom told me that it's not right for a Christian to watch movies on Sunday. She goes, I'm stuck. All these years, I don't know what to do. (laughs) 1930s, that's like like 80 years of... Sunday feeling conviction about watching a a movie. But that's how it oftentimes is. Kind of those things, we absorb them into our conscience and they become become quasi-convictions for us as well. It's not just parents. If there was somebody spiritually influential in your life, maybe it's the woman that God used to sort of uh, help you understand how, what it means to follow Jesus, or there's some teacher that you listen to all the time early on in your Christian life. Whatever they said is like the Bible, right? Even if it's not in the Bible, it's like in the Bible. Your conscience thinks it's in the Bible, even though your mind knows it's not. And so then you are in this tension, like, I, I don't quite feel right about that, and I'm not sure about that. That's a weak conscience. There are many reasons, you could probably add some to this, 
that this is the case. Now, listen, does that mean that everything that your mama said is wrong? Nope, 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 I am not saying that. When those things are biblical, great. But when they are not, what happens oftentimes is you begin to understand and grow in your faith and your knowledge of the Bible, and you come to realize that this thing that was a conviction passed on to me by mom or grandpa or whatever is not in the Bible. But my conscience is not agreeing with what my mind has come to the conclusion on. And so now what am I to do? I think many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, now listen very carefully. Because right now, some of you are saying, I am so glad to be here today because I know my conscience is weak in this area, but I've wanted to do it. And what I'm hearing you say, Pastor Steve, is that if it's not in the Bible, then I can do it, right? Is that what you're saying? And I want to tell you, no, that is not at all what we're saying. In fact, it is the opposite of that. For the weak to participate in something that their conscience says is wrong, even if their conscience is wrong in saying that it's wrong, would violate their conscience and therefore is sin to them. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7, look again. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, which he has previously said is nothing, but for them it is something, and their conscience being weak is defiled. In the eating of the meat. Romans 14, 14 says this. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. You get that? Here's verse 23, a few verses later. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, this is a little bit confusing. Are you saying, Pastor Steve, that the same activity for one person could be okay and for the other person it could be sin? That is exactly what I am saying. Not because the thing itself, but because of the issue of willingly violating my conscience in regards to this thing. That now is the issue. Again, Romans fourteen fourteen, I think, is the best one that says that, that particular issue. And this is a problem. This is a problem. We need to take our consciences very seriously. So again, if you're hearing from me, eh, just go out and do it. It doesn't matter. That is the opposite of what I'm wanting to say. It does matter. I have a friend that went to a very conservative Christian college. It's one of these Christian colleges where like your first day, they give you the student manual of behavior. And it's like the thesaurus or the dictionary like this, you know, and please read this and memorize all the rules so that you can act as a proper Christian here on our campus. And, you know, it's like, okay, page 533, page 975, and just tons and tons of rules. So many rules that, according to my friend, if you go there, there's just no way that you can obey everything. You're, you're violating something all the time. Sleeping is sin somehow. And he, one, I, I, I was talking with him about this, and he says, you know the number one damaging thing that attending that school did for me? He said, I got used to violating my conscience. I got used to violating my conscience. There were so many rules, you were just all the time violating your conscience. And to me, this is the double whammy of legalistic 
Christianity. It entrenches into the church, the local church, chronic, weak conscience Christianity on the one side, and then it loads up on those people a list of rules that they can't fulfill all the time anyway. And so they just get used to doing things that their conscience doesn't give them freedom to do. And when you get used to violating your conscience on non-essential issues, it feels the same when you are violating your conscience on things that God does care about. And that is why it is so hard for young people who grew up in, well, I'll just call fundamentalist kind of circles, it's so, they, they struggle so much because long ago they had to get used to violating their conscience. And then they don't know how to live. And it just creates all of this confusion. So for the conscientious weaker brother, here's what happens. The stronger brother gives an argument that he finds compelling and he cannot defeat it. He can't point to a verse. He can't get in the Greek. He can't get in the Hebrew and say, you're not exactly right on that. So he's like, I know that that guy's right. But their conscience does not agree even with the proper doctrinal argument. They cannot get to the place where it doesn't matter to them anymore. And I would suggest to you that this is a sign of maturity. How can you know if you are a weaker brother or a stronger brother on a particular issue? Does it matter to you? Now, Aldrich goes on to describe two kinds of mature brothers. I want to talk about these now, the the bottom two. When it comes to a mature brother, there is the non-participating stronger conscience or mature brother. This is the person who their conscience gives them freedom to participate in this particular thing. Their mind gives them freedom to participate in it, but they just simply choose not to. They just simply choose not to. It's not a big deal to them. If they see another Christian that's participating in it, they have not one drop of judgmentalism in their heart towards them. But for some reason, they just choose not to. They could, maybe you're a parent and you say, you know what, for the sake of my kids, they're not mature, they're not getting it. I am not going to participate in this particular thing. I don't have a problem with anybody that does. But for me, I'm not going to do it for their sake. There's an example of a non-participating mature brother. The final one, and then, of course, is the, is the participating mature brother. This is the person who their conscience gives a green light, their mind gives a green light, they participate in it, they eat the idol meat to the glory of God. They love it, okay? They love it medium rare with seasoning, salts, and A1 next to it. They just love it, and they have it every night. Now, on any Christian liberty issue, there are those four types of people. The professional weaker brother, dogmatic Absolutely not listening. I don't care what anybody else thinks. It's all wrong, all time. Every Christian who's ever lived shouldn't do this. Susceptible weaker brother, trying to find his where her her way, trying to figure out exactly what's right or wrong, in, easily influenced to participate in something. The non-participating mature brother, who it's not a big deal to him. You can do it's fine. Doesn't bother me at all. I just don't do it. And then finally, the participating mature brother who does it and enjoys it. And does it to the glory of God as best they can. Now, you might expect that Paul at this point in the passage to say, okay, weaker brother Christians, buck up, man up, get over it. You're creating all kinds of problems with your little poopy attitude. You'd expect something like that. If you were writing the letter, perhaps that's what you would say. Paul is not concerned at this point 
with the weaker brother. His concern is with the stronger brother and the attitude that they have. Now we pick it up in verse 9. Look at what he says. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, or freedom, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And we're going to spend more time in this passage in a future message, not so much today. But I want you to see that the concern that Paul has here is for the strong and the attitudes that they are displaying in the midst of their disagreement and their apparent unwillingness to limit their freedom for in love for the sake of the weaker brother. And you see here, he said, I, I don't want you to be a stumbling block. And that word literally means this, to put an obstacle in front of someone. Okay? It doesn't mean upset, like you have to live your life so that no one's ever upset about anything that you ever do in your life. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about living your life in a way that would embolden somebody to do something, the weaker brother, that their conscience doesn't allow, and you know it. Sort of that flaunting of your freedom, sort of brazenly living your life in such a way, I don't care about my brother, you can, whatever. This is right. I know it's right. And how I live doesn't matter so much uh, to you, or it shouldn't. Now, let's just do a very quick outline of this passage and I'm not going to explain this at all, but I just want to get this in here and before you. What are the strong to do and what are they not to do? They are not to be a stumbling block, specifically in two ways. By brashly living out their freedom before the weaker brother. And secondly, by urging the weaker brother to do something that their conscience doesn't allow them to do. What are they to do? They are to see the issue from God's perspective. In other words, to get the to realize that there are some things that are a big deal and there are some things that are not a big deal. And if you make the little thing a big thing, you're doing the same thing as the weaker brother. And I got a quote that I'm going to use next time where basically the guy says, there are two kinds of legalism. There are those that think you're more godly if you do, and there are those that think you are more godly if you don't. They're both legalism. They're just two different approaches. And the strong in their maturity need to realize the obligation they have to the weaker and to defer to them in their lifestyle if possible, which is the, the last point. See, love your brother enough to limit your, to limit your freedom, to limit your freedom. And this is, you know what he says? He says, if, uh, if, if, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat again. And I was studying this very passage as I was eating dinner at Outback this week. And I got to thinking to myself as I was cutting into the Outback special, which is my, it's my steak of choice there at Outback. Medium. Sweet potato. Brown sugar on top. As I was cutting into that steak and just, I thought, what would, what would it take for me to say that I will never eat meat again? Because I love steak. 
it would take something pretty big for me to say some kind of statement like that. Paul says, for my brother, I would never eat meat again. That takes a profound love for somebody to limit yourself in that way. Now, I want to, just in conclusion now, I want to give you an illustration, okay? And this is not a perfect illustration, and some of you may be able to find fault if you have a weak conscience about this illustration. Uh, so, <laughs> but let me, just, let me just give you an illustration of this. Let's just say, let's just say that right now, very unexpectedly, all of a sudden, through the back doors of the auditorium, bursts one of the hospitality people, and he says, hey, I hate to interrupt, but you're not going to believe what just happened. There is a huge truck pulled up next to the church. It's from the Horseshoe Casino. And they have a thousand catered prime rib dinners that were supposed to go somewhere, and some got messed up, and they're wondering if we would like to have them. I would suggest to you that our discussion about that here in the room right now would basically go into two broadly different directions. On the one side, we would have the people who last night, I know it's only like 10, so you're not quite as like, you know, juiced up for prime rib right now. But last night when I gave this illustration, there was like three or four people that said, yeah! I said, okay, well, we've clearly identified some of the group who would say, this is like the greatest day ever to be at Bethel Church, right? (laughs) And don't you preach that God is sovereign? And providentially, he has brought to us a truck laden with prime rib dinners waiting to be eaten. (laughs) Who are we to deny what God has provided? I mean, let's just see this as a sign from God. You know, where's the fork? Where's the knife? I'm ready to chow this down. It's going to be awesome. So we would have those people, and we could identify them as being the stronger in this, in this discussion. And, there was, and then you would have somebody that, that would stand up and say, wait, wait, wait a second. My mom taught me that if you're ever at church and a casino truck with prime rib pulls up <laughs> and offers it free to the church, it is wrong to eat that kind of meat. Somebody would probably say that. And we'd be like, oh. Okay, all right. And so then you could see how there'd be some debate. Like, you know, we've had like $20,000 worth of food pull up, offered to us as a church. And some people are going, come on, I'm so hungry, I want to eat. Others be going, I don't know, it's casino food. And then somebody might step up and say this. Hey, everybody, listen, I just want to share a little testimony with you. Prior to my coming to faith in Christ... I spent many years at that horseshoe casino. And I lived in the materialism of that place, and I lived in the greed that that place feeds. In that, I lost my house, I lost my wife, I lost my family. It took me to the bottom. And then I came to faith in Christ. And I am so glad that God has freed me from that whole thing. And I just got to tell you that I'm sitting here and I, I feel uncomfortable eating food from a place that my life was so dominated by. I just wanted to share that with you. 
All the air goes out of the room, right? And what do we realize in that moment? That the real issue is not the prime rib. The real issue is our relationships with one another. And whether or not we are willing to love the person to a degree where I limit freedom that I may have. Some people are going, oh, it sounds so good now. Maybe we could sneak some out the back. It would be all right. (laughs) But I love them enough to limit my freedom. Here's the thing. The weaker brother in that moment cannot change his conscience. But the stronger brother in love can change his lifestyle. So that the things that really matter to God can be promoted within the congregation. Like love unity, testimony to the community. Because you see how when these things become big things and people get fighting about them like this, it says the opposite of what the gospel is. The gospel is of a self-sacrificing savior who denied the rights that he had as the son of God, limited his freedom to come down and to become one of us and to give his life for us. That's the gospel that we preach. That's what we want the whole community to know about. That's what we want you to know about today and to believe and to receive. And so when a local church allows a little thing to become a main thing, and now there's bickering back and forth about a little thing, the community looks at that and says, well, there's nothing to that place after all. Because they can't even limit, they can't even love one another. And our message is that God loves us. And the message of the Bible and the scriptures in the New Testament regarding the church is that God's love to us means that we must love one another. And that this love is what says that there is a reality to the gospel that we preach. All right. Now, what if there are no weaker brothers around and the prime rib pulls up? Yes. (laughs) What about then? Is it okay maybe then to uh, eat a little bit of meat? Or what does it mean that he says that by sinning against my brother, I'm actually sinning against Christ? What, what, What might we learn about who we actually are dealing with when we deal with a fellow Christian? What does that mean? So there is a lot to say in a future message about how we work through these things because we're done right now. Next week, all about him. All about him.